1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. <laughs> gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kills. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of the dead. This picture contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Welcome to episode 18 of the Father and Son Watch Horror Movies Podcast. We are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the movies we cover, so be warned. I am your co-host, The Father, also known as Pastor Matt, also known as Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, Jackson, The Son, and hold on, before we start the podcast, let me put a sombrero on and check my blood pressure. <laughs> uh, Monroeville Mall uh, yeah. citation there, isn't it? Okay. Uh, so before we get going, we are in the Halloween season, so let's talk about just for a minute what we've been watching as we count down to our favorite holiday. So, Jackson, what horror movies have you seen uh, this week? I know that uh, you messaged me earlier that you were watching one that had a little bit of an effect on you. Oh my gosh, I have seen so many movies. So it is, when we're recording this, it is the 6th of October, and I have seen in total like 14 movies already on the 6th of October. Me too, man. Um, and uh, the one, the two that I saw today were Eli Roth's Cabin Fever. I watched this after listening to the Land of the Creeps episode about Eli Roth. And um, I watched that. I think it was the first time I'd seen it all the way through because I did not remember that ending. Um, uh, very Night of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, actually. So that's interesting. But um, the second one I watched was The Taking of Deborah Logan, which messed me up. That movie. Yes. Freaked um, I don't usually like film footage movies. I think the first Paranormal Activity was pretty okay, and the rest it kind of... Wait a minute, what? Went... what? What'd you say? First, first Paranormal, paranormal activity... was just okay? Yeah, well, you know what I mean. Compa- oh. compa- to horror <laughs> movies proper, for oh. Paranormal Activity movies, it's fantastic, but when you compare it to The Shining, <laughs> you oh, know no, what I mean? I straight up love Paranormal Activity. Okay. One of the best theater experiences of my life midnight show okay opening that, weekend, that's the problem people were freaking out i'm watching these on a computer screen and you're you you were watching this in a surround sound theater with an audience so that probably has a little bit of effect on it and i do like it i love that movie but um i don't think katie's interactions with a demon are on the same level as kubrick's the shining or the original halloween you know what i mean it's not as intellectual. Well, yeah, performance wise i agree with you but i i i, I will confess i love found footage movies i think we should do mm-hmm. one i mean okay blair... that'd be interesting because i don't know much about them blair witch paranormal activity and then taking a deborah logan those are the big ones well, that blair I... witch is in my top 10 of all time paranormal nice. activity is oh, up heard. there love the last exorcism great Bigfoot movie from uh, the co-director of Blair Witch Project is Exists. So mm-hmm. there are some good ones out there, man. I promise you. All right. Well, that'll be interesting to, to um, for you to school me on 
the ways of the found footage horror movie. But this one definitely messed me up. Haunting, taking a Deborah Logan. I want to say haunting of Sharon Tate because I was oh, thinking about. Oh, don't mention that. I was, yeah, I was thinking about watching that movie. Then I saw the Rotten Tomato scores, and I was like, mm, maybe not. Um, yeah. But anyways, yeah, that's what I've been watching. It's been an eventful Halloween season for me so far, and I'm hoping to keep that up. Always two movies a day. That's my goal. But you know, sometimes you falter. Um, but I'm excited to talk about the series that we've started with our last episode and now this one because it exemplifies oh, yeah. the Halloween spirit more than any other thing, I think, because it was every decade or at least almost every decade um, from the 60s, 70s and then 80s. And then we will leap forward to the 2000s, obviously. But um, this movie would come out, these movies, and it would be like an event. Whenever a Romero dead movie came out, sort of like Saul, but that lessened and lessened as the years went on, they got worse. This this was an event for horror fans to go and see the Romero dead movies. And that still carries on to this day. I mean, I hear people saying, oh, I watch Dawn of the Dead every October. It's my ritual. You know what I mean? And I can see why, because as we'll get into, this movie is a classic and for good reason. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I can't wait to get into it. We're, we're going to take a deep dive into that. But uh, yeah, I've been keeping up with you. I try to watch two a day as well. I usually get up pretty early and watch an hour of a horror movie, then finish one up during lunch and then try to watch one in the evening when I get home from work. So I try to fit, uh, fit in two. I've been working through both the movies of 1971 because I've forgotten so, so much about them and through 1995. So that's been a lot of fun to go from like seven and species to like daughters of darkness and twins of evil you know from from hammer so that's been a lot of fun so yeah and i and i really want to recommend some of those hammer films that kind of got overlooked because you know hammer was kind of dying in the 70s and you know they every i think most horror fans know about captain chronos uh, many know about vampire circus which i love but uh twins of evil and uh, Daughters, of, and not Daughters of Darkness, that, I don't think that was a Hammer film, but that may have been AI, I can't um, remember. But Countess Dracula was one I watched last night, and that's a Hammer film, and a, and a great mm-hmm. one. So, yeah, it's been fun to go back and forth, even though I going through 95, I have to rewatch Halloween 6. So, that'll Ew. be a chore, but <laughs> the producer's cut's better, but that doesn't say much. So It's watchable. It's, yeah, it, it it's watchable. So, well, yeah, I agree with that. So, Anyway, um, we're talking about, depending on when you date it, whether it's the European release or the American release, and we'll talk more about why that is, I'm going to go ahead and go with the American release. We are talking about 1979's George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Now, um, the first time I saw Dawn of the Dead, I remember that as like a 12-year-old who'd become addicted to horror movies, especially after seeing psycho um when in the fall of uh 1984 i i began to take my my bmx bike as 12 year old (laughs) and there were two different video stores that were within kind of peddling distance of my house and both mom and pop video stores and there was one that um there was always this one clerk i can't remember her name I, I think she was in like her late 20s. She always wore flannel long before. This is 84, <laughs> long before grunge. She wore flannel and she um, it was a blonde and, and she would let me rent whatever I wanted. None of the other clerks would. I mean, I had to go with PG, PG 13, um, you know, starting in 8045, but she would let me rent whatever I want. So that's how I saw Maniac for the first time. 
you know, that's how I got to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time. And that's how I got to see Dawn of the Dead for the first time and fell in love with it from the first viewing. Um, what about you? What was the first time you saw Dawn of the Dead? First time I saw Dawn of the Dead, probably. Um, well, it's difficult for me because I'm growing up in an age where whenever you hear about a movie, you also see part of the movie. You can't just hear about it from word of mouth and then discover it on your own. The way you discover it is seeing clips from it, you know, on YouTube or in compilations or something like that. So I had seen bits and pieces of Dawn of the Dead. I, I had never gone into it with, with uh, fresh eyes. But first time I sat down and watched it all the way through, probably two years ago. Um, and it was a movie that whenever I first watched it, I was thinking, mm, not as good as Night of the Living Dead so far, or what's going on. But I, I needed to give it time, because this, this is a movie that, um, upon first viewing, it seems like, oh, they're doing it again. They're doing a color version of Night of the Living Dead. Um, this time, they're flying around in a helicopter instead of, you know, being in uh, one location in the house. But then once you continue watching it, and they get to the mall. I think that's what everybody thinks of, but they they forget that there's a there's a solid thirty minutes before, you know that that whole thing takes place. But when I first watched this movie, like I said, wasn't keen on it in the beginning. Watched it as I got to the forty five minute mark. I would say I sat there, felt like thirty seconds after that, from the forty five minutes to the two hours, you know, at the end, um, felt like thirty seconds. And then I just sat and I thought about it, and I was like, what just happened? Because you try to think back on it, and you can see little bits and pieces in your mind, and it doesn't—it fe feels like it just flashed by your eyes so quickly. Because everything goes from bad to great to okay to bad to hell to uh, kind of a happy ending. I don't know what what would you consider a happy ending for these movies. I guess Day has the happiest ending, but um, yeah, I I wasn't. Well, we'll talk about the ending because it was a different scripted ending, so we'll talk sure. about that. Um, but it didn't it didn't affect me as much as um, it it does now because I was watching it like oh this is a stupid zombie movie I didn't recognize the true genius set this is a Romero dead movie this is the grandpappy of you know zombie <laughs> movie if if Night of the Living Dead is the is like the first originator of it this is what perfected it and what movies would copy after it oh absolutely and so let's talk a little bit about the background to this. Um, after Night of the Living Dead, of course, we talked last week how Romero basically got screwed because the, you know, the distributor didn't copyright it correctly. And so Romero, after that, had a series of flops. He tried to do a drama called There's Always Vanilla. Um, it's not very good. Um, you can watch it on Tubi TV if you want, but it's not very good. Then he tried to like straddle horror and drama with a movie called Season of the Witch, which has kind of a feminist, you know, thing running through it. Then he does The Crazies, um, which I enjoy. I like the remake better, but The Crazies was okay. It didn't do gangbuster business. He does Martin, which I thought was a bold experiment, um, but also doesn't set the world on fire. So he's trying to figure out what he's going to do next to keep the lights on. He's looking for another project. And a buddy of his was co-owner of the Monroeville Mall, which was one of the first indoor malls uh, to, to open in North America. And so he got kind of a backstage tour of it. And the owner made the comment that because they were fueled by nuclear power, uh, also, like I said, you know, you could survive a nuclear apocalypse here. 
And Romero looked at him and said, but could you survive a zombie apocalypse here? <laughs> and that was the inspiration for Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and so he, he has this inspiration. He's in New York and he meets Dario Argento. Argento wanted to meet Romero, even though Argento barely spoke any English whatsoever. And so he tells Argento, Romero does, Argento was in New York for the premiere of Suspiria, I believe. And so Romero says, you know, I'm thinking about doing a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Argento immediately replies, come to Rome. I'll get you an apartment. I want you undistracted, write the script. He does, finishes the script in less than four weeks. And it was like three and a half weeks that he cranked it out. Argento got funding for him for it because he was having problems. There are all kinds of theories out there how much it was. The producer says it's actually about 500000 So what he did with just a few more bucks than Halloween is pretty impressive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, just the fact, um, I, I was listening to the commentary track, you know, with Romero and the U.S. version of Dawn of the Dead. And um, one of the things that even he couldn't believe is that the crew was able to film a zombie movie, a gory zombie movie, after hours in this actual mall. That would never happen today. That would never happen today. And the fact that that mall is still standing and people can migrate to it like the mecca of, you know, uh, horror movies, you know what I mean? That's crazy that this has been preserved because if you look back on stuff like The Night of the Living Dead House, The Cabin from Evil Dead, none of that stuff is still standing. This is all... Right. And this movie was made for such a low budget for explosions and helicopters and uh, gunfights, motorcycles in a mall, 500 zombies coming to tear somebody apart in an elevator. That's that's terrifying. Like that's i mean not terrifying that's terrific that filmmakers can um make something with that little budget and halloween is a great movie but it's definitely more low-key than this oh yeah it was you know it's absolutely amazing so and we'll talk more about that the filming in the mall and so forth you have been there you were just so young you don't remember you were there when you were like four years old um i've been there several times and this December, we'll make another trip to that uh, to that Mecca and, and check it out. But um, so while Romero's in Rome, living in this apartment that Argento rented for him in downtown Rome, he uh, Romero telegraphed Tom Savini and said, we're making another movie. Start thinking about ways to kill people. And <laughs> Savini says he still has that telegraph. <laughs> and that's, you know, that was it. And so. Then Romero goes to New York City to cast it. And the casting was almost just coincidental. I mean, the characters who play, was it Roger and Peter, I believe, the two policemen, Ken Foray, and he had Roger. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and Stephen, I mean, all these guys and Francine, they all come about in a kind of roundabout way. Um, David, I think you pronounce it MG, I'm not sure, who plays Stephen, he was actually cooking at a restaurant that Romero was eating in with his wife Mm. and introduced introduced himself and said he wanted to be an actor and wanted to know if he was making a movie. And Romero said, yeah, I'm making one. Come down and audition. Boom. He gets the lead part. (laughs) Great. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Scott uh, Reniger, who plays... Roger was also working at that restaurant. Same thing happened to him. You know, he was a waiter. Um, Ken Foree, 
you know, he was friends with Dwayne Jones, who played Ben from Night of the Living Dead. And when he heard they were casting, he asked Dwayne, he said, could you put in a good word with Romero? So Dwayne called George, said, my buddy Ken's coming down to audition, give him a shot. Boom, he gets the part. You know, the part of Francine was really the only person who kind of walked in cold to the audition and got the part. And she immediately, once she got the part, she realized, I've never taken an acting class. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Great. Yeah, the auditions were more of, we like your look. Come on, be in our movie. Well, she pulled off the lines, the few lines that they ha- they gave them. But, I mean, it was just, mm. it's pretty amazing that, you know, so many of these, with the exception of Foree, he had been acting and, you know, he'd done a lot of stage work and, and, and so forth. The rest of these are pretty much amateurs who are walking mm-hmm. in. Um, and so they cast the movie, go back to Pittsburgh, and then they follow the Night of the Living Dead model, where the cast and crew are just filled with friends from Pittsburgh. Yep. And what I find is funny, just a little tidbit, uh, David, M- I think it's M-Gay, because I watched an interview, this guy said his name, okay, and he didn't, he, didn't, okay. he didn't correct him, so I assume that he's, he's right. Uh, David M-Gay, he went on to not really, you would think that a movie like this would kickstart his career but um in 1990 he was in basket case two and i don't think that's telling of a of a pro of a <laughs> i don't know of, of yeah ken Faree is the only one who went on to a prestigious career after rob this, zombie right? movies is what i know him from yeah he's well he's done yeah he's done quite a bit but he he had that cameo in the dawn of the dead remake he's he's mm-hmm. done quite i think his imd page is 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 pretty impressive and he is an impressive actor you know, and a pretty intimidating guy at six foot five, you know, yeah. but he's, he, he really is, I think a fine, I think he's the finest actor in the cast in this movie. Do you disagree? Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree. And he has the most quotable lines I would say too. I mean, he is just like a one line machine. He, he can out one line Freddy Krueger, I would say. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I never liked Freddy's one liner, so I uh, <laughs> agree with well, you. Well, the, the first movie has some good ones. Yeah, but those one-liners are more horrific. He turns into kind of a vaudeville act after a while, and I can't stand that. Sure. Okay. But so, still, Ken Foray does a great job with the one-liners. I think that that makes this the most—you you walk up to somebody, start talking about Dawn of the Dead, and they're immediately going to start talking you know, in his voice and doing all the different quotes, you know what I mean? Because it's When just there's no a, more room in hell, and yeah. It's such a likable cast. I mean, there's no way you can't get into it. Whenever they're they're driving the trucks and screaming at each other, you know, just having a, a gay old time killing zombies. You know what I mean? Night of the Living Dead is so oh, yeah. dark and depressing. Day of the Dead is introspective. But this movie is just good old plain zombie killing fun. Well, yeah, I, you, you said something there I want to pick up on. I really do think the chemistry in this cast is really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell, I mean... You know, the characters who played, you know, Roger and, you know, um, the two cops, they, you know, they hung out together. They became good friends. Ken would pick him up. You know, they would ride together to the set. They would hang out together. And so, you know, and then David also would just kind of, you know, huddle up with them. And so you can tell these guys really liked each other, and really got along. And I, I agree. I think the chemistry in night of the living dead is more tension which i understand for that but this yeah that you can really tell that these guys got along and i think it works for the movie mm-hmm. yeah i would agree and um day of the dead i, I hate to keep talk, jumping ahead but i think that was that was lost maybe a little bit we went back to the tension 
I love the camaraderie of this movie. I like it when people can can get they start off with their differences, but they all realize that they have to get along to survive. I love that, and we see a lot of that in shows like The Walking Dead. Um, but that's the way to go. I think Romero understands that people want to see smart protagonists in a zombie movie. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And let's give credit where credit is due before we get into filming. The cinematographer, Michael Gornick, I think deserves a lot of credit. There were no steady cams used in this. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was just his muscle and his balance. <laughs> and those riding on a golf cart. I mean, and those rigs probably weighed 50 pounds. Yeah, it was it was not easy. And so he did it himself. And yeah, if you look at his IMDb page I mean, he's produced, he's directed. But the only films he shot were for Romero. You know, he went on to shoot Creepshow, which I love the way Creepshow is shot. Mm-hmm. I really like it. And and so I think he did a bang up job here. It's a shame that nobody outside of Pittsburgh gave the guy a shot to be a cinematographer because I I I think he did good work. Yeah, and this movie looks professional. And I don't I don't know how you pull that off with how much they were extending themselves on this budget. But I think a lot of that is due to the cinematography and the direction. I mean, this is a well-shot movie. You've got very I mean, you've got a huge mall, but to really capture the you know, the horror of it. You're just looking at a mall with a bunch of people with green faces stumbling around. Like, that's not terrifying unless you shoot it terrifying, you know what I mean? Once you have the added backstory and the way it's all cold and distant, you know, then it becomes eerie and unsettling until you interject life into it with these characters. Yeah, and, you know, getting now into the movie itself, I mean, like Night of the Living Dead, um, it doesn't mess around long, right? There's not a big, it jumps right into the horror. I mean, you pretty much go right into that tenement scene, which is intense. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to see. Nobody, like like I said before, nobody nobody wants to sit in a zombie movie and have, a, at the beginning, a 40-minute discussion of the ethics of killing zombies. What if there's humans in there? You know, that, that comes later, because that's what the zombie movies are great at, as a, a vehicle for discussion. But what pe- gets butts and seats, as I said last episode, is action. Yeah, and when they do have exposition, like I love the when they do have exposition, like the interview um, in the TV station, you know, you've got the the talk show host talking with an African-American leader who is in complete denial and refuses to believe with any level of certainty that the dead are actually rising because he doesn't trust the powers that be. He doesn't trust kind of white people in charge. And then, you know, we get the tenement scene with the racist cops mm-hmm. and it, it's it's kind of ironic there. Right. So when we see the racist cop, you're like, yeah, I don't blame the guy for not trusting. But on the other hand, it's pretty much as plain as the nose on your face that that is what's happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it goes into that. And I like that, you know, um, it, it, it kind of brings things. What do you think of this? I think it brings the racial tension and so forth to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Whereas Night of the Living Dead did it more in subtext. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to get at. Um, this movie is not about subtlety. This is a very, this is very much, okay, you didn't get it. Night of the Living Dead didn't really sink in with the remaining people. Okay, here it is. This is what the zombie apocalypse is really representing. And yeah, um, that's the theme is starting to emerge. Um, people are the problem. People are the downfall of other people. You know, the zombies are just 
they they just happen to be there. It's coincidental. Um, it's like a force of nature, and you we see this in like mass destruction and these hurricanes. The when people are stranded, more more than likely it's because other people have screwed them with like you know trying to survive themselves. And that's that's what we see in these movies, and that that was a theme that's explored later on in shows like The Walking Dead and later zombie movies. So this started it all. Yeah, I, and I think they also just took you know as we talked last week. I think you know Romero just took Dwayne Jones' advice because Dwayne Jones had said he thought that should be put up front in Night of the Living Dead, and you know Romero said he thought he was being cool by ignoring it, but here he takes Jones' advice and runs with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it, that surprises me that Dwayne Jones wouldn't watch the later Living Dead movies, seeing that this recommendation by him was brought to the forefront. It came to fruition, but he never watched them. So does he even know? Yeah, even with his buddy Ken Faree and he didn't watch it. That, that That's yeah, that's a little surprising. But it's just as we talked last week. Just wasn't his cup of tea. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the cast and crew were talking about, you know, when they were setting up shop uh, shots, Dwayne would be off to the side, like reading Proust and, you know, reading um, pretty heady philosophy, Jean-Paul Sartre and stuff like that. You know, that's just who he was. He was an academic. He, you know, he did Night of the Living Dead for the paycheck and probably to get a uh, Screen Actors Guild card. He didn't really care about the movie. It wasn't his thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, but you know, it, it does shock me that he didn't, because Romero took his advice and his buddy was in it, that he denied ever saying. That is a little surprising. And I think that's a that's just pride, you know what I mean? Once you say, once you make such a big statement about zombie movies, you know, not being your thing, even though you're the star of one, can you really go back on that and be like, oh yeah, maybe one one night I was I was with some buddies and it was on TV, I watched it. You know what I mean? Like, I find it hard to to believe that he was never exposed to it, but maybe he just didn't, wasn't interested in sitting down and giving it the time of day. Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. I mean, uh, he made his contribution to the series with Night of the Living Dead. I think he's one of the most memorable, memorable parts of that movie and of the franchise perhaps. But, um, if, you know, nobody's forcing him to watch those movies and, um, he's already left his mark on history. Yeah, I don't get it either. When I had, you know, um, I had a buddy when I lived in L.A. who was on a sitcom, an NBC sitcom. I hated the show, but I watched it just because he was my buddy. But yeah, so be it, you know. Um, during the tenement scene, when we get to the tenement scene, which I think is 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 pretty intense, um, Savini had been tasked with blowing up a head, which had <laughs> apparently never been done before, and he hadn't done it before, and so. When word got around the set that the scene was coming, the entire cast and crew gathered to watch. <laughs> and Savini was nervous enough. It's like, is this going to work? And then he turns around. He's got a huge audience. <laughs> They're all <laughs> gathered around. And so, you know, he pulled it off. And then, of course, not only pulled it off, it was kind of groundbreaking because we'd see it again and again. We'd see him do it in Maniac. We'd see it in Scanners. We'd see it done again and again, which is take a fake head do a real quick shot of it. Don't give the, you know, don't give the audience too long to see that it's a fake head. You just show the shotgun blast and then the next frame, boom, you see the head exploding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's awesome. I think it's an awesome effect. Yeah, and before this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a movie would be just completely pulled from theaters if you had an exploding head. Joe Bob Briggs says that the two things that would definitely get you 
and X rating are genitalia and heads exploding. <laughs> well, and of course, we'll talk about this later, but they had to release Dawn of the Dead unrated. Mm hmm. And they couldn't even advertise on network television or in most newspapers because it was unrated, because that was considered basically X-rated, and it was for the violence. So, uh, but uh, and oh, X-rated for violence song. is a very rare occurrence because usually that has to do with nudity, X-rated or or disturbing, uh, like sacrilegious material. Usually that that's a very strange thing because we look back at the '70s and there were tons of really bloody movies or that weren't released X-rated, it was usually sexual violence that would warrant an X-rating, right? Right. They had, yeah, you had those films that continued through the 80s and early 90s that battled with the MPAA because, of course, many of the Friday 13th movies were going to be rated X or NC-17 if they didn't, you know, cut, you right. know, certain scenes. All and that's what the ratings for became, to, like, started to become more strict. I mean, in the 70s, it was pretty much don't show, show pornography to our kids, and that was about it. Yeah, and they, but basically the ratings board said this was violent pornography. And so they just, you know, they, so they just decided that, nope, we're just releasing this unrated. And it was a hit anyway. So, you know, yeah. good on Romero for that. Let's talk about the next effect that really blew me away the partial decapitation with a helicopter. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I was listening to Savigny explain this. Um, oh, it's great. The fact that he had his friend who had a really uh, short forehead, a really low forehead, so that they could add on to his to his forehead to make it, you know, look normal sized. Um, and then the blades were animated, were added in. Right, afterwards. they were added in, in post, yeah. Um, and I was wondering, I still don't know exactly how they got it to cut and make it look like it was chopping off. I, oh, I'm sure I heard that. Savini talk about it. You want me to tell you? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so they added on to his head. They added a prosthetic to the top of his head. They lined the prosthetic with fishing wire. Oh, okay, I see. And so off camera with this fishing wire, I, it, it, Savini said he had one of his assistants, maybe Tasso, run with the fishing wire so that one part after another just, just kept unwinding and, and jumping off his head. So That's there's awesome. actually just like a guy just running outside of camera with a fishing wire pulling this guy's head off. That's cool. And Tasso made such a great contribution to the first three uh, Living Dead movies, as I understand it. He was always the guy to go to whenever you needed an extreme effect shot and you couldn't find any actor who wanted to do it. Like if you wanted people to be their faces to be gored and for them to be thrown on the concrete, Tasso was your man. Oh, yeah. I met Tasso. He was with Savini at, at Camp Crystal Lake when I went there. Really nice guy. Really nice. quiet. Um, Savini talks on the inhale, but Tasso's really quiet, but mm -hmm. really, really nice guy. Um, and then while we have the helicopter scene, you're there refueling. You have Ken Foree, you know, kind of wander oh, into yeah. a building. Yeah. And he's attacked by two child zombies mm -hmm. who, by the way, were Savini's nephew and niece. I heard that. Yeah. They just happened to be on set. Let's go make you up into a zombie. Yeah. And he... They did not tell Furry he was going to be attacked. Yeah. And he right. did not know he was going to be attacked by children. And then they told him to, you know, shoot them with the squibs they attached to these little kids. Oh and so Furry was, you know, honestly surprised. And also he said disgusted. He said the one part of Dom that disgusted him was shooting those kids. He said he just he found that too disturbing. That's what I hear. And that is really difficult subject matter to 
you know, and usually zombie movies, they skip over that part. You only see adult zombies. You'll maybe see one creepy little girl zombie. But just the fact that, yeah, zombification would affect children, and even more so probably because they're more susceptible to it. I mean, um, that would later be like more explored in 28 Days Later, which we've talked about before. Not in the episode that's been released. but um, Never been released. The the great lost episode, yeah. Yeah, eventually, someday, someday we'll re-record it, but, um, yeah. Well, one of these days when you're, like, on Christmas break, we'll see if we can get, mm-hmm. like, Dino Michelle back on. But, uh, yeah, that's horrifying. Just just the fact that, yeah, you've got to. I mean, they have no life left. That, you know what I mean? Um, it's not like there's no person left in there, which is what they think. I mean, obviously, we see in Day of the Dead that that's not entirely true, that there is some humanity left in them, um, some semblance of it. But uh, that's just terrifying, horrifying. And um, y- there is genuine disgust on his face. Now I know why that scene is so impactful, because he felt like he was really cre- uh, committing an atrocity. Oh, yeah. I, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, not because I enjoy seeing children that way. <laughs> I just think I just think Faree's responses is so wonderful. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They never in the docs I watched, they never they just show his name. They never pronounce oh, really? it. So, I heard yeah. somebody say foray, but I don't know if that's foray. true because there, there's no accent on the E. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll, I'll uh, sometimes there's interviews and they'll say their name and they'll correct to them if they're wrong. But I think I, I think it's foray, but it might be foray. Yeah, I, I mispronounce names. I'll tell you, like I mispronounced John Carl. I used to call him John Carl Buckler, but of course his name was John Carl Beekler. Beekler, yeah. Beekler, yeah. So mm-hmm. um, that happens. I apologize, but that, I'm trying the best I can. Then you have you have the scene with the rednecks and National Guard. Yeah. Going out, you know, hunting zombies, and this tells you something about Romero. Apparently, according to Savini, Romero was just a hero in Pittsburgh. Because he never left Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and because he shot his movies in Pittsburgh with people from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So people loved him. So when the production manager went to the National Guard and asked if they could show some of their armory and all that kind of stuff, and they were like, what for? He said, well, George Romero is filming the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. And the guy running the armory in Monroeville, just like 10 miles away, goes, well, can we be in it? And so these guys who are on weekend duty for the National Guard, they show up and they bring their armory just to be in the movie. And a bunch of, you know, a bunch of rednecks from around Monroeville show up with their shotguns and cases of Iron City beer. And it turned into a to a big party. But they they just idolized in Pittsburgh at that time. People just idolized George Romero to the point where, you know, they give him permission to use the Monroeville mall at night. They the the car that you remember near the end that that they're driving mm-hmm. around the mall that was lent to them by a dealership. I mean, all this stuff is just given to them because it's George Romero and because right. they just absolutely loved him. He could only have done this at that time on a five hundred thousand dollar budget in a place like Pittsburgh that idolized him. Otherwise, it never would have mm-hmm. happened. Yeah, if he would have shot this in L.A., it would have never. The taxes alone would have been more than the budget. But um. Yeah, and it's funny, I heard Romero himself say, everybody in Pittsburgh was either a zombie or killed by a zombie in one of my movies, because they would line up and, you know, put makeup on me, I'll be in the movie, you know what I mean? Which is fantastic, I can only imagine having a community like that, that would, you know, this is their movie, this is Pittsburgh's movie. Um, Shot in the winter, with the heat turned down in the mall at night. 
done right. for, and they did it for a dollar, a donut, and a t-shirt. Yep. And and you know how Philadelphia, Philly is Rocky's, you know, domain. This is this these are the living dead, uh, you know, stomping grounds, the mall, the cemetery, stuff like that. Pittsburgh, they they love it because this exposed the world to the Pittsburgh culture and you know geography. Oh yeah, I mean it's just yeah he's just he was so beloved that, especially at this time I think by unfortunately by the time that he passed away so many people had forgotten about them because he hadn't really between like uh, the mid 80s and the early 2000s, he didn't make really a movie or 90 to 2000, he didn't really make a movie. Um, and so, uh, well, I guess he did the dark half and like, I guess he did in 92 right. and it was like on a shelf for a year, but it, it took a long time before he returned to it. So, but yet yeah, then we finally, we get to the Monroeville mall, which sounds like your favorite part. Mm -hmm. I think that's everybody's favorite part. It's the most iconic part of the series. And people still, I mean, I've seen videos of people flying from like Germany to spend an yeah. afternoon at the Monroeville Mall. I mean, and it's that's incredible. the thing that it's almost it's almost unrecognizable, honestly, unless you have screen screenshots like it's totally I mean, the place where that big clock tower was, it's now a kid's playground, like a little oh, yeah. play area with foam. And they've redone all of the the stores, except for one, except for one store, the one where um you know, the machete wielding biker dude. I don't know if his name is machete or what, but Tom Savini's character, he does a little, a little barrel roll on the ground and ducks behind a pillar. Um, that store, right. it's still the same store, but, um, yeah, the uh, ice rink is gone. That's now the food court. Is, yep. And, uh, just all everything's been redesigned obviously the wood paneling is gone um and they've they've redone I can't all the blame them for that yeah no the wood paneling is just i mean the 70s sound great but wood wood paneling really guys i mean everything looked like a cabinet like everything looked like a cabinet <laughs> video games look like a cabinet like you look at like an old, like a pong machine and you're like what is a spaceship or or a video game console you don't know but it's all um, it was all wood paneling and shag carpet unfortunately in the 70s i i remember yeah. it all too well and we see that uh, in this movie with the big red carpet um oh. dawn of the dead it's just a great style and everybody's got bell bottoms so it's just, uh, fantastic but um, i don't know who thought that was a good idea cuz you can lose like an entire pizza in shag carpet i mean it's yeah. just yeah like swimming in Chewbacca's hair. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so they shot from 10 to 6, even though the mall didn't open until 10.30. They had to stop shooting at 6 because the music would come on at 6 a.m. and nobody knew how to turn it off. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like I said, the heat was turned down. It was freezing. Uh, Ken Foray or Free admits that when he's drinking Jack Daniels, it was real Jack Daniels. He did that to keep from freezing to death. <laughs> Makes sense. He was so, so, you know, um, cold. Um, and so one of the things that would happen also, so you get all the zombies there, you get all these volunteers. And I think, I think Savini had a crew of eight with him and it took three hours to do one zombie. And you imagine mm -hmm. how long that would take, how many zombies they had three hours. Yep. I hear and, it described as a conveyor belt, a conveyor belt of death. So the people come in and are turned into zombies. Oh, man. And, and so, you know, he does all this. But one of the things they would do, of course, you've got to set up shots. And, you, and mm -hmm. back then, especially in the pre-digital age, it was much tougher to set up shots and it would take quite a while. And so during the there was a Brown Derby bar in the mall at that time, the zombies would go in there and drink. <laughs> 
And so they would drink, and then some of them would get drunk. And some of them swore it helped their performances, but apparently two guys grabbed the golf cart and rammed it into a column, causing $7,000 worth of damage after getting plastered as zombies. Great. Well, that I feel like that would happen. You got zombies stumbling around. There's a golf cart right there. I mean, why not capture it on film production value? You know what I mean? Um, well, just make sure that when you're making movies, buddy, keep them away from the bar. That's all sure. I'm trying to tell you. Sure. Yeah, and I, I hear horror stories about that all the time. Oh, it's so cold out, and they, they would just take take shots of whiskey, and that, that's all it was. And then you watch the movie, and they're like, so what do you say about Jason Voorhees? Who is <laughs> Who are you talking about? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, great. So that's why this movie suffered at the box office. The only person I ever saw pull it off was Robert Shaw, who was three sheets to the wind when he did most of the USS Indianapolis speech. Right. Um, well, I mean, he was in the movie, <laughs> in the script, too. He was supposed to be drunk. So I guess it worked for him. Well, he took he took advantage of the script there. So Yeah. And then so later on, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them all, but later on we get Savini show up with the biker gang. He and Tasso jump in with a real biker gang. Yep. The uh, the pagans from Pittsburgh. They volunteered um, to do it. And, you know, but here's the thing. We've talked about this last week that Savini and the biker gang show up and they screw things up. But we see before that that the kind of the shines off the diamond, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're acting really bored. <laughs> yep. Right. I mean, David M. D. And, and the and the actress who I forget right now who plays Francine, they look really bored. There's that shot of them lying in bed, just kind of looking off, like, "What do we do now?" Yep. And so, I mean, it's, it, that's how you, that's why we get that montage of them at the mall. You know, they've exhausted every fun thing to do at a mall because you're only supposed to be at a mall for what two hours and then you leave. They're they've been in there for two days and they're like, "This was fun." Now all the zombies are outside. It's just us and this huge, you know, I don't know, thousand, five thousand square acre, you know what I mean, place, and yeah. we have nothing to do. Well, but it it raises an issue, you know. Aren't they just zombies too? Because they're not doing anything but just consuming and living. They're not really living. Mm -hmm. And you also have to ask yourself. I think we assume that our four characters in the mall, the couple and the two police officers, are the protagonists. But if in Birth of the Living Dead, Romero makes a comment that, you know, God unleashed the dead until the living redeemed themselves, you could argue from that point of view, the zombies are the protagonists, mm -hmm. and the four in the mall are the antagonists, and they're just wasting life. I always saw... The zombies is sort of a biblical plague. They're like the plague of frogs or boils. They're the angels of death. And like and they're not just killing the firstborns, they're killing all of them. You know what I mean? This is this is an act of it's it's sort of like the flood, the biblical flood of zombies, I think you said last episode. Right. They're wiping away the impure and only the pure of heart can survive. Right. Um, and that's not just the minister to me, that's Romero talking. That right. you know, yeah. Um, yeah, and there is something really, like, huge and epic about this, this wave of, of terror and of death, which is wiping the slate clean, basically, as we see later as, as the humans sort of rise up, um, but then it happens all again, greed takes over and it happens all again with Land of the Dead, 
um, with, you know, class differences and, you know, humans can never really get together and make this utopia. It's like the utopia doesn't exist. Zombies will always come back, basically. And well, because they don't redeem themselves, right? I mean, if right. you're following Romero's line of thinking, human beings have done nothing to redeem themselves. They're still mm-hmm. racist. They're still classist. They're still sexist. They're still divisive, you know, and they haven't done anything. And that's what raises that question. Yeah, I mean, the four we have in the mall, they don't strike me as racist. Um, but at the same time, we'll come back to the ending later, but when the biker gang show up they sure get territorial uh, and in a zombie apocalypse about a bunch of useless crap mm-hmm. sure i think maybe it was more of a threat it was like a threat to our safety you know the well, the but, biker but being there david mg is shouting you remember when he's shooting he's like we fought for this is ours mm-hmm. i guess and i don't know i think it's presented in the movie as the biker gang or the or the bad guys i mean that I don't think that it was intended for the protagonist to be, you know, to be unrealistic here. This, I mean, they did kind of fight for it. When we see, as soon as the biker gang comes in, they start wrecking crap because they open the doors and let all the motorcycles come in, but then also zombies are crawling through the cracks. So, I mean, they're kind of ruining stuff as soon as they get there. But when you look at it from an objective point of view, without the context of these are the characters that we've grown to love and these are the characters that are written to be the people that we look up to and that we relate with, yeah, nobody's perfect in these movies. That's the whole running theme is that humans are imperfect. Zombies are a perfect killing machine. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, I guess what I'm saying is um, you know, we're in the zombie apocalypse. In the apocalypse, what difference does it make if you have direct access to video games and a dining room and mm-hmm. a J.C. Penny? I mean, at that point, what difference does what cardigan you want to wear really matter? If a sure. biker gang wants to tear it up, especially when you're obviously bored of it, mm-hmm. what difference does it make? Yeah, and humans are selfish creatures. That's explored way more, I think, in Day of the Dead and at Night of the Living Dead, obviously, because all the characters can't agree on anything. They've all got to have their opinions on everything. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. They are bored of this stuff anyways because the things that make video games and watching movies with people, you know, that that makes them entertaining are the people you watch it with. If there's no social aspect to that, you're just in your own little bubble doing these things, they quickly lose interest, as we see in a bunch of these Last Man on Earth-style movies. Um, you know, all the things that you thought would be cool if you're the last person on Earth, like, I'm going to raid all the stores and take all the food I want. Quickly, that becomes really boring because there's no incentive for you to do anything. Yeah, so the char- the protagonists are selfish. Um, and I think we see a lot more of their personality flaws in the beginning of the movie, uh, the things that get people killed, um, than we do later on in the movie because they've more worked stuff out. But you're right, they are selfish. They are fighting over things that don't matter. The biker gang, kind of in the same vein as the zombies, represents pure chaos. And like right. this, this force that's just destroying everything. And I think the biker gang actually does a better job of destroying stuff than the zombies do. I mean, um, they inflict more oh, than $7,000 of property damage, I would say. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. And so, um, which leads me to something else, which is another theme, because everybody talks about consumerism in this. Mm-hmm. 
that, you know, Romero was really hitting on consumerism. And that's obviously easy to see. That, that is obviously there. Um, you know, especially that, that quote when they're talking about why are the zombies coming to a mall? Mm-hmm. You know, there's that quote, well, this was a special place in their lives. You know, it's that whole, you know, uh, Romero made the comment that, you know, he was disturbed by a culture where people bought stuff they didn't need with money they didn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of donating it to good causes or doing something with it. Well, I think the four in the mall are doing the same thing. I mean, they're not doing anything but raiding the mall. They're not out there looking for more gas and more survivors. They're not out there looking to make an outpost for more people. They're not trying to bring people together. They're just living like this materialistic dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I wonder if we would have seen an exploration of if the biker gang hadn't come in, I wonder if those characters would have been like, screw it. You know, we, we're, we're surviving hold up in this mall, but what's the point of it all? If we can't share it with other people and, and sacrifice ourselves to make the world a better place. I wonder if we would have seen that if we had been given the chance, but um, we never do. <laughs> and I no. know I, I this, think from their characters, I think Ken Foray eventually would just take it off. I mean, you can sure. tell that, especially without his buddy anymore, when he becomes a zombie, I think he's just ready to bail. I mean, he did, you know, he's he's the one yelling at David Emge's character, quit shooting, who cares? Let him have yeah. it. You know, he's it doesn't matter. Um, he's about the only one that gets it. But there's another theme I want to talk about that I don't think is talked about enough, which is um, along with consumerism and racism and sexism, there's also the issue of tribalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got that where, you know, David Emge is trying to lead this fight against the biker gang. The biker gang does is, you know, fights back. They see these humans just as much as a threat as the zombies. It's this tribe. And, you know, on top of that, you know, Freud talked about, and I'm not a Freudian, but Freud made a point, you know, dividing the ego and the id. You've got one part of your personality that is just impulsive and it just thinks about, you know, food, shelter and reproduction. And that's all it thinks about It's the animalistic, right? It's that reptilian brain. The other side, you've got this, oh, but I want to be seen as a good person. I don't want to offend people. I want to fit in. But when the zombie apocalypse comes and you have these tribes, it comes out. Yeah, it's the ego's gone, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. it's absolutely gone. Now it's just about <clears throat> pleasing your tribe, which I think Dawn of the Dead uh, showcases very well and I think is pretty applicable to our modern situation in this country, wouldn't you say? Sure. Yeah, and um, that's so crazy to me that a movie made and, you know, released in 1978 and 1979, um, it's crazy to me. The more we look back on these classic movies i mean we looked at night of the living dead and we were like wow we can draw a lot of comparisons to today's society and and then 78 79 we can draw even more comparisons it's it just uh speaks to me the fact that um the history is cyclical um we're supposed to look back on history you know uh learn from learn from our mistakes and not treat people the way that we used to treat people. But we look back at this and even in 1978, it was very telling of the political culture and the, you know, society at that time. Um, and we're looking at it now, 2019, uh, depending on how you look at it, us release date or Europe release date, it's, you know, for, what, 40 years later. Um, it's just 
absolutely mind-boggling. And yes, it is very telling of how people treat each other these days, where we're fighting over things that ultimately don't matter. Like you said, the selfish nature of the of the protagonist. Um, we're fighting over things that we didn't really even care about before it became a fight. You know what I mean? When when right. when things aren't contested, we don't really care about them. We don't really think about them. But as soon as somebody else wants to step up to that, you know, everybody's up in arms. Um, and that's both sides of every debate. Oh, yeah. And, and we're just in a in a position where people just don't talk to each other. I mean, it's just all mm-hmm. conflict. You know, the left thinks that the right right now are barbarians. The right thinks that the left are just trying to launch some kind of coup d'etat and, you know, that they don't care about people. It, and nobody's actually discussing things. We have real needs in this country that aren't being addressed because it's just all this bombastic nonsense, you know, by both sides. It just makes me sick. That's one of the reasons now I'm an independent, don't belong to a party because I just call a pox on both of them right now. But it, 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 we haven't learned anything. And, it, it, you know, you're right. It is cyclical. We've gone through this before and you know here we are again and it's just it, it, it's just amazing how prophetic both night of the living dead and dawn of the dead turned out to be we've we've seen these rallies you know where people just become unhinged and it's that goodbye ego hello id right it's yep. just here it is and and because we're we're it's okay because our tribe will applaud us and that's all we need and so all right Sorry to get so heavy. Um, <laughs> I know this is a horror movie podcast. <clears throat> but let's talk about one more thing that's a bummer before we move on. The original ending had, you know, you've got two of our, if you want to call them protagonists, become zombies and are killed. Mm-hmm. You've got Francine and Peter left. The original script that Romero wrote, he wanted it just as, you know, just as much as a bummer as Night of the Living Dead. He right. wanted Ken For- he wanted Ken Foray's character, Peter, to shoot himself, himself in the head. Yeah. And Francine to walk into the helicopter blades and be ripped apart. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was Christine Romero, George's wife, who said, mm-hmm. you can't do that again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't do that again. It's just too much of a bummer. Would you now there's a debate over whether or not even those scenes were shot. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kick myself now because back in 2004, maybe I had the ultimate edition dvd which is a three disc set um that had a lot of extras on it and i traded it in once i got my blu-ray and now i'm (laughs) kicking myself because that we didn't get a 40th anniversary blu-ray and the dvd had a lot more extras than the blu-ray has so i'm and that dvd is now going for like 250 bucks online so uh Mm -hmm. your dad's an idiot but anyway um would you have preferred that ending or would you have at least preferred that as an alternative cut on like a yeah i would like to see it and i I think it definitely was shot because when i was listening to the commentary that had christine forrest or christine romero and george romero and tom savini uh they were talking about it like they had shot it they're like and i can't remember if this is a version that has him and they're waiting and they're they're waiting and then he he's almost about to kill himself and then he puts the gun down and they're like okay so this is that version as if they had shot a version where he does actually kill himself. Um, so I, I think that that was shot, and I would like to see it. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure somewhere on the, on the backwoods of the Internet you can find at least screenshots of it. Um, I don't know. I mean, now, you're right. Savini and Tasso said, yeah, they shot it and they did the special effects for it. 
Uh, Romero initially said, nope, we never shot it. But then there is a clip on that DVD that I used to have on that ultra edition, 25th anniversary edition, where he's talking like in a, in a behind the scenes documentary where he's talking like he did shoot it. Yep. And, and like I said, they were waiting for it. They were thinking that it would be this version because the version I watched with the commentary, it was like a weird amalgamation of, of U.S. and Europe versions where mm. it didn't have the Goblin soundtrack, but it also did have a lot of the European stuff in it. It was kind of strange. Um, uh, but they were waiting. They were waiting for that scene because they didn't know which version it would be. They, were, they went quiet for a second. They were, like, they were murmuring like, oh, okay, I guess it's the scene. Let's see which version it is. And then he puts the gun down, and they're like, okay, so we, now we know it's some weird version that doesn't have that in it. So it, de- it definitely was shot. I don't know that it was ever actually edited edited into the movie. It might just exist as its own little, you know, envelope of film somewhere. Um, but I would love to lost, see it. Or like, you know, all the Friday 13th footage. I would I hate mean, that. I would, I would hate too. that. One of the one of the great atrocities is when a film is destroyed purposefully or unintentionally. Um and just lost and that sucks so much because preservation of history i'm huge on that whenever there's a movie that not a lot of people know about i like to you know like see if i can track it down on dvd or something like that because somewhere down the line you know 20 30 years from now nobody's gonna remember it because all the people that actually saw it you know that have either gone gone too old to remember it or or are dead now so uh, that really sucks, and I really hope that can be recovered by some historian. And you hear about this all the time. Something goes up in a private auction on eBay or in a more secure setting, like in a physical setting, where it will just be like, oh, we don't really know what this is, but there's a film you know, film stock found in the crypts of the Dawn of the Dead um, you know, production, and they right. put it in a projector, and it's either just black footage that was um, – you know, just just like trash or something really cool that was never seen before. And if the, the person who bought that is cool enough, they'll put it on YouTube or or at least, you know, give it to the people so that they can put it on as a Blu-ray extra. But, um, yeah, I would. Well, love and, and you're right. I mean, we have supposedly sometime in the next six months a lost Romero movie coming out, his amusement that's, park movie that they discovered they enough of to kind of cobble together. So, yeah, hopefully yeah. it's out there now. If you've listened, have you listened to the Goblin soundtrack for the European version? I have. I think it sounds cool. Isn't it much superior than what Romero picked for the sure. U.S. version? Oh, <laughs> like the like the sound library stuff that he found. Oh, it was awful. Um, where it says music by people are always thinking that it was music by George Romero. Like, oh, he composed it. No, he went to a film library to found you know stock music like he did for the first one. I think for the first one it works because. You know, it's Night of the Living Dead. Everything about that movie is, let's let's get it out. You know what I mean? But this is a huge production. And when you have Goblin, you know, you compare it with, like, a movie like Demons, which, or Demoni, I'm sorry, if we're going by the Italian name. Um, (laughs) That movie would not be anywhere near as good as it is without the rockin' soundtrack, because um, it's invigorating you know what i mean and i guess by that point the band had broken up and it was just one of the members of the band doing music but um goblin adds a lot uh they of course they do argento's movies suspiria that they did the soundtrack for which is Um, amazing yeah 
and they're just awesome. Everything, just the name, Goblin. That's so cool. You just want to throw up the devil horns. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I prefer the U.S. cut because I think Argento cut too much out of the European comedy. version. But I, I do, you know, wish that Goblin was in the U.S. cut. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that would be an ultimate kind of thing. Now, so Argento had the European rights to distribute this. He did. It was a big hit in, you know, in Europe. Uh, But in Europe, of course, it was known as not Dawn of the Dead, but I don't know. Zombie. Zombie. Oh, that's right. Which would. And then Zombie 2 came out. That's how Fulci. Yeah, that's how (laughs) Fulci was able to release Zombie as Zombie 2. I've heard about that. The Zombie 2, which is not really a sequel to anything. It's just a movie called Zombie 2. And then they made Zombie 3 and Zombie 4. Then they made Zombie 1, which is confusing in itself but yeah I, I and you can stop at zombie 2 by the way <laughs> i have heard that now i've never seen zombie 2 i've just seen the poster with that decaying corpse on the front oh um, you need you need to say it. it's a ridiculous movie i agree with dr walking dead when he talked about it on hmp it's a lesser movie it doesn't have the production value of any of the romero movies um or return of the living dead but it is fun and it's got a couple scenes that are so iconic you just have to see it and i have it on blu-ray so when you're home we'll need to watch it nice uh, okay um so that being all that being said there are a couple things other than the soundtrack that i do have a problem with and and mm-hmm. Don, these are just nitpicks because i do love this movie um and tom savini has admitted and i I, when I was at Camp Crystal Lake, I was lucky enough to sit at the table where Savini was having lunch with Tasso, and people were talking and asking him questions, and, and he, was, he was very kind to respond to all of them, and, and one of them asked something like, what are, you, are there any re- uh, effects that you regret? He said he only regretted two that he really regretted. One was having Tasso's hands as, as Mrs. Voorhees in Friday the 13th, his, <laughs> his hairy hands. And he picked up Tasso's hand when he said that and said, look at these, they're still hairy. Um, <laughs> but the big one was making the zombies gray, not yeah. realizing that they would come off as blue and green. He said he still cringes when he sees the zombies in Dawn of the Dead. And I have to agree with him on that. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that. It used to freak me out. Like, I didn't know what was going on with the green-blue zombies. Um, But uh, it has a charm to it. And I think the movie would be very different if we had realistic-looking zombies like we do in Day of the Dead and Land of the Dead. If we had that zombie that we know now, uh, even The Walking Dead, with the creepy, decaying corpse look. Back then, it was just regular people, you know, cross-eyed with blue makeup on their gray, bluish, greenish makeup, depending on the light in the location they were in. Um, I think it has a charm to it. Especially, I think of that scene um, when the elevator opens, Flyboy's in the elevator, and you've just got a crowd of blue zombies just standing there. I don't know why, but I think that's really funny. Um, But they definitely look better in later entries. I mean, they look better in Night of the Living Dead because it's black and white. You can't tell what, what color they are. In colorized versions of Night of the Living Dead, they made them green like they were in uh, – like they looked in um, in Dawn of the Dead. But, yeah, I definitely think that Day of the Dead had the right approach. Give them their regular skin colors. They're just a little more pale, and their faces are all messed up with cre- – and that's, that's something that I think they did a great job with in that movie – 
uh, where Tom Savini was like, we had to think about the way they died before we would start doing their makeup. Like, how did this one die? Oh, a boat motor, cut them in half. Okay, well, let's do that then. With this movie, it just feels like, oh, we got another one? Put some gray on their face. Oh, another one gray on their face. You know what I mean? And that's due to necessity. Because like you said, they only had a, a few a few people to do this crowd of zombies for yeah. the for those huge shots with with so many i think of the the shot where the bouncy ball goes off the mall and then into a crowd of zombies and you think about the preparation that goes into that these are all just pittsburgh natives that wandered on the set they were like okay now we got this whole crowd of people and it's just me my assistant and a few volunteers um not ideal yeah it's such a small team for such a big movie so what else do you want to talk about with Dawn of the Dead? Anything else you want to bring up? Sure. Um, I'm wondering, watching this movie and seeing all the great gore effects, what would Night of the Living Dead have been like had Tom Savini not gone to war? Um, during oh, the- if he'd been able to do the effects for it, yeah. Um, would Night of the Living Dead have been as gory as Dawn of the Dead? Uh, of, of the Dead? I don't think it would have been because of the movie that Night of the Living Dead is where it's more about the psychological, you know, the the characters more than it is the zombies. Um, but I'm wondering if Savini had been there and his expertise in the, the gore uh, effects had been there during that filming, would Night of the Living Dead be a schlocky zombie movie instead of the psychological horror movie that we know now? Do you think it, it could have been a very different series had it started off as gory as it was? And I'm not I'm not sure because one Savini was so young and, and, and hadn't you know, he was a theater guy. And so sure. he was experimenting with theater effects then. So I'm not so sure it would have been much, much gorier. Um, it was years and years before Savini became a head, you know, effects guy. I think the first time his his chief effects job when he wasn't just an assistant, like he was assistant on like uh, Bob Clark's death dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he got out of the army, but I, you know, I think it was Martin was the first time he, you know, really was in charge of effects. So I think he was so young. I'm not sure he would have been as brash after because he spent basically, you know, four or five years working in theater and movies before he did Dawn of the Dead. So I think, you know, I think that that experience really helped him. So I'm not sure he would have been as as bold, you know. And plus, he didn't know Romero as well. He knew him, but he didn't know him well. It wasn't until, you know, Dawn of the Dead when he realized that, you know, you could just come up to George and say, hey, George, we got another idea how to kill somebody. And George's like, yep, fine, go for it. You know, <laughs> and, you know, so it was just, so I think it, uh, uh, it took that much, much time. I, I don't think we need it, Night of the Living Dead. I think there's enough there, and especially for the time, it was so shocking. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, know, see, a zo- you see a zombie's butt, you've got, you know, uh, people fighting over, you know, eating real intestines and stuff. So I, yeah, I think that's, I think that was enough. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I I think it would have been interesting to see that type of movie. And we did get to see it eventually with Tom Savini's remake of Night of the Living Dead. And I don't know if we'll ever talk about this in that series and this series that we're talking about now. Um, I, I, uh, I thought it was OK. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was better mm-hmm. than most of the zombie movies that would come in the later 2000s. Um, this was a, that was a 90s I, movie, I, obviously. I liked Tony Todd in it. Mm hmm. I really yeah, Tony like Tony Todd is fantastic. He's good yeah. in everything he's in, realistically. Yes, he is. I, I do like Tony Todd in it, but other than that, uh, I just thought it was okay. But but th- that's mm-hmm. not necessarily Savini's fault. The studio kept cutting his budget. So, you know, right. that's and so they kind of screwed him over there and he had to kind of rush some things. So mm-hmm. uh, what else do you have on Dawn of the Dead? Anything else? 
Um, I think it's something we touched on earlier, but maybe not to the full extent that I want to. Um, the the do-it-yourself filmmaking that Romero retained even through Day of the Dead, I would say, but especially in this movie, with an e- with an even bigger amount of assets going towards the movie than he had in Night of the Living Dead, um, obviously with the mall and all these extras. I, it's amazing to me that this movie retains the same, like, do-it-yourself group of friends sitting around talking about stuff that would be cool to see on the big screen type of, of style. I mean, it's easy for this movie to become a blockbuster, and that wasn't really even a... Jaws was the first prototype of that, and that hadn't really even come to fruition yet, the blockbuster, but this could have easily become what we see nowadays with movies where it's by the numbers and very studio-like, um, very meddled with by the studio, but this isn't that. It feels like what, like the people zombie movie. Am I wrong? Like it feels no, like. No, I, I agree. This was, uh, this was like Night of the Living Dead. George got to do whatever he wanted. I mean, Argento read the script, had no notes. Argento let him do whatever he wanted to do, and it shows. Uh, now I could have done without the pie fight, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I think that. Other than that, I, I just think it was, I think Romero really pulled it off. And, and yeah, I do love mm-hmm. this movie so much. So do you want to, do you want to, what else do you have to say before we Just one more sucker? thing. I think it's interesting that Argento didn't have any notes because we see later in his cut of the movie, he did have some problems with the final product. Like the, um, the humor, the humor in it, the comedy, he felt like was a little too much. I know that in his European cut, there's a lot less of that American humor. Um, it's more just a straight horror movie. And I understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, I feel like it loses a little bit of its charm whenever you don't have the comedic, you know, inner, like these characters don't feel as charming whenever they're just surviving. They're not, you know, becoming friends. Well, that, and even though I wasn't a big fan of it and neither was, uh, George's wife, she didn't want it in there either. I understand it, I, you know, not just for kind of comedic relief, just also because, you know, Tom Savini and Tasso and the Pagans were supposed to be jerks and not taking anything seriously in the middle of a zombie mm-hmm. apocalypse. So, you know, I, I, I get that. But it wasn't just that. I mean, Argento just thought it was too long. I mean, he yeah. just thought for European audiences, it was just too Oh, long. yeah. And the extended cut, I don't like the extended cut of Dawn of the Dead, where they add like, what, 20 minutes to the movie? way too that's unnecessary the movie is as it is it's a long movie but it feels tight and concise because it says everything it needs to say and it it never drags really every single scene has a purpose but when you add that extended cut to it it's just way too long i think argento had the right idea making it more like he had the goblin score obviously he cut some of the humor out and i think that's that's admirable um romero i think just I need we need that perfect mix between the goblin score and the runtime of Argento with the comedy and the like ingenuity that went to the American cut. But let's just get rid of the extending cut entirely. I don't know why people they're adding that as a selling point on some discs. Like you can get the extended cut. Nobody wants well, to see I don't. that. Well, I, I, I'd like to see it once. I, I don't think I did, if I remember. But yeah, so I, I think that's like enough. I, I know. I don't usually like most extended cuts, whether it's Apocalypse Now or whether it's this. So, 
Um, but but still, I don't have a problem with them putting that on there. But I I do understand what you're saying. It, it is a little too long. And this is the one risk you take when you ha- give a filmmaker carte blanche like Argento did with Romero is you can become at times a little self-indulgent. And I'm not meaning that sure. as an insult. I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's a temptation anyone would have if you're just given kind of the keys to the kingdom and allowed to do what you want. Yep. That's all I have to say about this movie. Great film. Everybody knows that. I'm not telling anybody anything new. Everybody knows that Dawn of the Dead is the fully fleshed out zombie movie that it would inspire the pop culture icon of the living dead. Um, when rating this, I hope I'm not getting, getting too ahead of myself. Are we go already moving it. on to rating? Yeah, when rating this, I wanted to be 100% accurate. I wanted to be like, well, there are oh, problems boy. with this movie. and But then... I watched it again and I was like, "Ah, oh, this movie is so fun." The flaws in this movie in this movie are easy to overlook when you realize that this is so iconic. There is not one part of this movie that somebody hasn't rewatched. You know what I mean? That somebody hasn't been like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let me watch that again. Let me pause and rewind," because even if it was unintentional, it's so quotable, rewatchable, iconic, and fun. This is a 10 out of 10 for me. I would say buy this movie, even though it's everywhere. I think it's even on YouTube, which I don't even know how that's legal. It's not public domain. It's It's on YouTube everywhere, not being taken down. Don't do that. Buy the DVD, buy the Blu-ray, you know, buy it on Amazon or whatever. I mean, Romero's estate, they they deserve it, right? I mean, he he poured his heart and soul into it. This is his child. Um... Watch this movie. Buy this movie. 10 out of 10. Dawn of the Dead. I love it. And, and this was the first movie Romero actually made real money off of. So God bless mm-hmm. him. So, But I agree with that. I have the Blu-ray. But I would actually say if you're ever lucky enough to stumble across the Ultimate Edition DVD from 2004 and it's not $250. Mail it to you, us. Yeah, please. If you find it like a <laughs> pawn store or you find it like, a, you know, someplace in a bin buy it because it, it is well worth it. And I deeply regret getting rid uh, of mine uh, when I got the Blu-ray. So for me, it's a 10 out of 10 as well. You have to own it. And it's on my honorable mentions of favorite horror movies of all time. It was in my it's top on, 10 list for a yeah. long time. It's on my top 10 list currently. So yeah, it was movies like uh, get out and scream that, edged it out just barely and screamed just because I think it's so much fun and because I loved it because it revitalized horror in the 90s mm-hmm. uh, just barely edged it out so it's it's right there like 11 or 12 Don't I think this. I think this is wow this is this is number 10 actually on my list so this barely made it um but I mean this would have been a strong honorable mention even if it was on there everybody knows this movie I think on uh letterboxd it's at what a four out of five, which is super rare. Like even the best right. movies, like Jaws, you'll see on Letterbox isn't at a four. Um, I think it's at a three something. But uh, those people should be banned from Letterbox. Yeah, <laughs> because you know non horror <laughs> fans will go on there and be like, it was fine, two point five out of five. You know what I mean? And bring down the average. Uh, but this movie appeals to everybody. Obviously, I'm seeing activity from my friends that it's advertising. It's all four out of five or five out of five. So um, that that should tell you that this movie is worth buying. Absolutely. And if you want to learn more, there are a couple of 
decent documentaries out there. As you know, most horror documentaries are just talking heads document. They're just people being interviewed. And these are no different, but they are fun because they do kind of dig in deep. Uh, Document of the Dead, which is on Shudder, and The Dead Will Walk, which I found on YouTube and I used to have on my uh, Ultimate Edition 25th Anniversary DVD. Bad time. Um, yeah, I know. So um, that's all we have for this go-around next week. Uh, God willing, we will cover Day of the Dead. So please join us as we continue our run through Romero's dead movies on our way to Halloween. Uh, we would love if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you enjoyed it, and we would appreciate a, a five-star review. You can also find the podcast on Twitter and YouTube, thanks to Jackson. Mm-hmm. And you can check out our website, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com, where we have blogs, and you can get the podcast there. Of course, you can also find it on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, as well as iTunes. We also have a closed Facebook group. All you have to do is send me a face request, uh, face request, friend request <laughs> on Facebook. Got those confused. Um, and let me know what you want. I'll add you to that group. I'll accept it. And so all that being said, Jackson, where they, where can they find you on the socials? On Letterboxd, I'm uh, at Kane Hero. That's K-A-I-N-E Hero. There's no spaces there. But on Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. Um, with an underscore, obviously I said that, but you can find my YouTube channel linked in both of those websites. Haven't been posting to it much, but I have plans for the Father and Son Watch Horror Movies YouTube channel, uh, which is linked on the Twitter, and I'm going to be doing video reviews. Right now I have five pages written for a Puppet Master series review, and oh, I've boy. only written the reviews for two of the movies. So five pages, two when movies. You get, when you get through three, you can quit. <laughs> yeah, I've well, that's what I had done before. I saw one through three and then Littlest Reich, and I think I'm gonna have to do it. I think I'm gonna have to see them all to make this a completion of uh, thing. So, uh, be you, on the you, lookout for that. You are the person who watched all of the Children in the Corn sequels, so yes, and <laughs> uh, I, re- I don't regret it, but uh, I probably shouldn't have watched them again. Oh, <laughs> well. <laughs> Oh, man. You can find me at Pastor Matt R on Twitter and also on Letterboxd. So that's all for now. But tune in next week as we continue our look at the great dead films from the late, great George A. Romero. So say goodbye to the good people, Jackson. Goodbye. And remember, we don't like people that don't share. (laughs) All right. So remember, folks, the family that watches horror together stays together. Have a great Halloween season. See you soon.